right, so tonight we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. We continue going forward in the account of origins. We saw back in chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's only two worldviews. There's one where God made everything with order and purpose and design, which gives our lives value, order, purpose, and design, or random chance of mutating disorders where inanimate matter became living, became more complex, which of course goes against all observable science as we know it to this day, and somehow, poof, we got lucky and we went from a tadpole to a human being, which is ridiculous nonsense. And it's also nonsense to try and merge those two worldviews, of course, that goes without saying. That's the first thing we saw on the first day is that God drew the distinction between light and darkness, and there's, there's no ambiguity with God. God is good, and we saw in the account of chapter one that everything he did was good. In fact, the last statement is it was very good. So God literally, God created the universe in six literal days, and he rested on the seventh day, and indeed everything he did was good, and we covered all that last week. And so, but it's worth noting that man and woman he made on the sixth day, the second part of the sixth day, and he made them in his image. And tonight as we pick it up in chapter two, we get a bit more on what you see the macro account, and then we get some specific details, more personal and even more insightful concerning Adam and Eve and the origin of all of us in this room. For we are told that in Adam all sin and all die. And it's because our head of the race, Adam, sinned and brought death on us, the human race, on the planet, the law of entropy, and the universe. It all came from the original sin through Adam and that's how it began. And Christ came as the second Adam, and the necessity of Christ dying on the cross is directly connected to the first Adam and his failure. And one other note I didn't mention last week. I've said this before. I did mention this, but not this detail, that the first 11 chapters are the most attacked chapters of the Bible by the atheist and agnostic because the devil understands that the validity and the truth of the inspired word of Genesis 1 through 11 is critical to the New Testament Realize this, there are 60 quotations in the New Testament pertaining to Genesis chapter 1 through 11, including many by Jesus himself. And so if you can discredit Genesis 1 through 11 and get people to doubt the validity of God's word and authority on all matters of origin, science, and everything else from Genesis 1 through 11, then you can undermine their faith and necessity for needing Christ, a Savior, who is the second Adam. And bear in mind in the Gospel of Luke, when the genealogy of Jesus is traced back through Mary, through David, and then Abraham, it goes all the way back to Adam, who is the first Adam. And that's why we're told Jesus is the second Adam. For where sin abounded in the first Adam, grace abounded in the second Adam, Romans chapter 5. So we pick it up in chapter 2 with more insights on these two wonderful chapters where there's no sin. It's a different world, and we're going to talk about that. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. This is the seventh day where God rested. So six literal days of creation. And on the seventh day, God rested. Remember, the sixth day he created all the animal kingdom as we know it, apart from the birds and the fish. And then the second half of that day, he made Adam and Eve. And we'll get more of that later tonight. But on the seventh day, he rested. There's something very special about the Sabbath. And we want to talk about that just for a minute. God rested on the seventh day. And the principle of a day of rest is with us, I believe, throughout the scriptures. I think it's, 
It's something to be understood by the New Testament church, not as a legal element of the Sabbath as it was understood in the Old Testament law, but as a general principle to the benefit of man in his triune nature because we're mind, body, and spirit. And the Sabbath, Jesus, of course, is Lord of the Sabbath, and he made clear the Sabbath is not meant to be a burden to man, but to be a blessing to man. Now, as God made progressive covenants from this first Adamic covenant, and he made a covenant with Noah, and then he made a covenant with Abraham, and then, you know, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses, and then, of course, the new and everlasting covenant. All those covenants were blessing covenants. He, he blessed, it was a blessing in all of them. His grace, his mercy, his character, his consistency is revealed in all the covenants. And with Israel, though, specifically as a nation, when he gave them the law in the Ten Commandments, the moral law, he gave them the Sabbath. You shall do no work on the seventh day. You, your family, your children, or your animals. And there's a principle there that was designed to, for the people, the children of Israel in the covenant of the Old Testament, to draw near to the Lord and be refreshed in the Lord physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. It was to be refreshing, following the principle of how God rested on the seventh day. But know this, the Sabbath, as, it's, as we'd understand it being on, the, on a Saturday, was part of the covenant with Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says it's a sign of the covenant and their obedience to the covenant, and along with circumcision of the male children, which actually goes back to the Abrahamic covenant preceding the Mosaic covenant. But the Sabbath was for Israel. You find in the New Testament, after Jesus Christ is raised from the grave in the book of Acts and the New Testament writings, there is no mention of the church being under the Sabbath. In fact, we understand that the church met on the first day of the week, generally considered Sunday, because that's the day the Lord raised from the, rose from the grave. So Old Testament, Mosaic Covenant for 1,500 years till Christ came, Sabbath, Saturday. Sabbath begins at sundown and goes to the next day at sundown. And then Jesus is raised from the grave, and now the church age, Jews and Gentiles, make it the Lord's day a different day but because it's a, new, it's a new beginning with the new covenant and the everlasting covenant. And we're told, of course, in Hebrews that the old covenant becomes obsolete and fades away and the new replaces it. And we understand that. The Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament by the Holy Spirit as being applicable to the believer's life. Not to justify us before the Lord, but to present the fruit of the Lord working in our life, what the Holy Spirit would produce. Of course, the law is good. We know that, that the law is good but it declares our guilt and it's our tutor, our teacher, to point us to Christ to be saved by grace. And we also understand that the whole law of God is summed up in this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law to love, to love God vertically and to love humanity horizontally. And there's a delicate balance here because even in the church throughout 2,000 years, there's been all kinds of groups of people who seek to put the church back in the law of the bondage to the Sabbath which is not there in the New Testament after Jesus is resurrected. And let's just say this. If it was that important, which the Seventh-day Adventists and others might teach, that it's that important to New Testament living for believers, don't you think it would have been in the book of Acts? Don't you think it would have been in the pastoral epistles, in the regular epistles, in any of the writings? It's not there because there's a uniqueness to it. It's like the dietary law of the Old Testament. The dietary law of the Old Testament in Leviticus was representative of unclean living. The unclean animals represented how the Gentiles lived. And that's why in the book of Acts, when Jesus gave Peter the vision to eat the unclean animals, 
He's like, whatever does this mean? And Jesus said, eat. And he told him three times to eat unclean animals, which a Jew would never do. Then the guys come to the front door from the house of Cornelius, the Roman who had sent for him. And the Holy Spirit said, go with them, doubting nothing. And when he went to the house of Cornelius and the Gentiles received the gospel message, Peter goes, now I understand what God was doing because the Holy Spirit fell on them. So the whole understanding of the dietary law of the Old Testament, it represented the unclean living because God makes a distinction, light and darkness. There's no ambiguity. And those unclean animals represented how humans live like beasts apart from the Lord. And the clean animals represented what God would provide through the salvation in Jesus Christ. So that's another example of the law in the Old Testament that had a contextual, uh, contextual application to Israel that is not contextually applied to the New Testament. Because even Paul the Apostle says, you can eat whatever you want to eat in the New Testament with thanksgiving and praise and as unto the Lord. We understand Scripture interprets Scripture, and we're told that. Now, we're also told that Christ is our Sabbath. So the real ultimate rest that we're looking for, humanity, from the work Jesus fulfilled. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father, and he finished the work that the Father sent him to do. So his death, burial, and resurrection, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we find our rest. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you know my yoke is easy. So Jesus is our rest, and if there's any more doubt on this, that we're not under the Sabbath as a church, legalistically, like the Mosaic Law, is we're told in Colossians that one man or one woman esteems one day and another another. Let each be convinced in their own mind. In fact, we're warned as we went through Colossians on Saturday night not to go backwards to things that are obsolete, but to go forward to the glory that is to come. So what are you saying, Pastor Joey? I'm saying that God rested on the seventh day. He made that a sign of the covenant with Israel as well, which was meant to be refreshing, not the yoke of burden and bondage that the Pharisees and the religious leaders made it upon the people, and that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. And one man assumes one day, another another. Let each be convinced in their own mind. So when we come back to the real principle of God resting on the seventh day to our lives, the application is this. It is really good to take a day off, one and seven. It's really good to set aside one and seven, whatever your work schedule looks like, to set aside time to be refreshed with the Lord, your family, to take inventory, let your body heal from the work week, whether it's physically demanding or emotionally and mentally demanding. In all my journeys as a pastor and ministry, I've just learned that, and Jeremy and I are really big on this as well, Pastor Jeremy and I, that we we. We have to map out our Sabbaths. Now, we have a normal schedule. We can map out a Sabbath day. But it's just so important that you prioritize a day of rest to draw near to the Lord and be refreshed in the Lord. For the Lord himself rested on the seventh day. Now we pick up and we move on. Verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown... For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the first man formed of the dust became a living being. The Lord formed him. We spoke about this last week, that God spoke everything to existence, God being triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the attributes of God are ascribed distinctly and collectively to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We saw back in chapter 1 the word Elohim in Genesis 1-1, uniplural noun, compound unity within one, 
can be translated gods, actually, in other parts of the scriptures. But since we know the Lord says, I am the Lord God, I am the only God, there are no others. And we know that Jesus claimed to be God, the Son of God. And for that, you know, that's why they put him on the cross. They considered it blasphemy that he claimed to be God. They picked up stones to throw at him because he claimed to be God. The New Testament writers tell us that Jesus Christ created everything in the universe. There's nothing in the universe, seen or unseen, that Jesus Christ did not make did, and is not holding together right now this very day. Everything doing out there in outer space, as far as the universe extends in our understanding of time, space, and matter, it's all under the authority of Jesus Christ. He's holding it together. There was nothing that was made that was not made with Jesus Christ. And we also know the Holy Spirit is attributed with creation. We've talked about this. So there on the sixth day, what would seem probably halfway through the sixth day, instead of speaking into existence birds and fish and the sea life or the earth and the separation of the firmaments and the distinction of light and darkness and outer space as we know it, God formed man because men and women are the crown jewel of his creation. And I say this for people that believe in aliens and all these different things. And, you know, as hard as the unbeliever and the agnostics and atheists look for a planet that would be sustainable life, to somehow believe that that gives argument that God didn't make this one with all the perfect elements that allow us to live here, there's nothing even found remotely close to this planet. And I can tell you tonight that the whole universe revolves around this planet because this is the planet that Jesus Christ, who made the universe, came to to redeem our father, Adam, and his wife, Eve, for the sin they brought on all of us that affects every one of us from the point of conception in the womb. The universe revolves around, not you. I used to think it revolved around me. And we know many people who think it does revolve around them. The universe revolves around this planet because the crown jewel of all creation is humanity. Because God said, let us make man in our image. And he gave us the capacity to know him and worship him and be in fellowship with him, to understand his love, which is his nature, and to reciprocate, return that love to him. No other created beings, to our knowledge, have that capacity. Now, we would say the angels do because the glorified angels worship the Lord, and they're there in the throne room, and the fallen angels rejected to do that, and they were cast out of the throne room. So it would certainly seem as they had volitional will and self-determination, the angelic realm did. But that's another dimension. It's not time, space, and matter, matter, the linear that we live in. It's another dimension completely outside of us, and that's important to understand. So he made us in his image, and he breathed life into Adam, and this is how it began. This is our origin. Every one of us, from the point of conception that we were conceived in our mother's womb as one cell, and that incredible DNA design that not only allows us to cell after cell reproduce to become the human being that we became with all the distinct characteristics that we are and the ability to reproduce other human beings within our own kind, which is exactly how God set it up. But he put eternity in our hearts, like it says in Ecclesiastes 3, and it's in us to worship. That's why he warns the Israelites, don't worship the stars. When it comes in your heart to worship the stars, don't worship the stars. It's in humanity to worship God a belief system regarding God or theology where they become God, philosophies. It's God has put eternity in our hearts. And all creation declares his glory to us, the accountability to a creator of design and order. And the head of our race came from the dust and God didn't speak him, he formed him. His personal fingerprints, if you will, in creating Adam. He did the same thing when he made Eve. We'll get to that in just a moment. And he breathed life into him. And this life, 
in time, space, and matter on day six, that God breathed into Adam is our origin. And this life is the very life still running through the human race this day where 300,000 people are being born on this planet. And the incredible handiwork of each human being being formed in the womb, like Psalm 139 says, fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's wombs, is the extension of verse 7. This is our origin. We came from the dust, we'll return to the dust, but God breathed life into dust. And isn't it glorious to think that we have this treasure of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ in earthen vessels, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what the second Adam brings us. The first Adam, we just go the way of all men, like King David said, but we're saved by grace. And though the outward man and woman are perishing through our with faith in Jesus, we're still perishing. The inward man, the inward woman is being renewed daily. For if anyone be in Christ, a new creation, and old things are passing away, and all things are new. This life, we were given life as a single cell in our mother's womb by God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And our, the incredible reality that we're allowed, we're sustained by Christ to believe him or reject him and to live for him or rebel against him is incredible. But the second life comes through the receiving of Jesus as a savior, and he makes us alive spiritually. We're alive physically from this verse 7. We're alive physically because he made Adam alive, and we're the descendants of Adam through Noah and his three sons and his wives. But we're made alive spiritually and eternally through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we're born again, we are made alive spiritually, where now the Spirit indwells us, and we can understand spiritual things, for the natural man, woman, receiveth not the things of the Spirit. But when we're born again, we're born anew, and now we do, and we pass from death to life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So that second birth, where Christ becomes our Redeemer through faith, and our receiving Him, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, not born of flesh or the will of man, the limit of the dust made to speak, to breathe from one cell. That's commonality for 8 billion people, but we're born again, and we're the children of God who are born of God, as many as received him. Isn't that a glorious thing? Because this is glorious. This is a beautiful chapter, but this was lost in chapter 3. But it's restored through faith in Jesus Christ, so we sing these songs and we rejoice in the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. So that's the origin of man. We didn't come from a monkey. He didn't come from a, a tag pole that got lucky and just kept getting lucky out of chaos. It's just ludicrous. As Pastor Chuck used to say, he always marveled how men who seemed reasonable became completely unreasonable when they talked about origin. But when the mind's at war against God, it just, it's just at war against God, and you, you don't think straight. We can't think straight morally anyways. Our conscience can't think straight because it's already skewed because we're born in sin. So we have a broken compass from the day we go, from the first word we say no, our compass is broken. Our compass is, we're born with a broken compass to make conscious moral decisions of what's right or wrong. It's when we're born again that we can understand things. But again, all, all proven science supports the Bible and the young earth. So just make that clear. And if you doubt that, go just Google online. Institute for Creation Research, Ken Ham. There, there's so many great resources. And I don't believe a young earth because those guys write good things about it. I believe because God's word says it. You think God's going to leave us guessing and hypothesizing our origin? 
God who sent his son to die on the cross for us because Adam sinned? Do you think he's going to leave us in the dark groping with speculative theories? No. It's nonsense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Six literal days is the only translation that fits the Hebrew word, and it's the only translation that fits the character of God. Anything else is blasphemous against God and his character. So be careful with those who would preach anything else. People say it's not a big issue. I say it's a very big issue. I think it's blasphemy to describe to God that somehow I came from a monkey and you came from a monkey. That's blasphemy because that's a direct conflict with this. And since Darwinism and evolution is based upon death, that means God's the author of death. Be careful you accuse God of being the author of death because he says Adam is the author of death. Let God be true, and every man a liar. This is our origin. This is our beginning. And it extends to the one cell you were in your mother's womb. But that second birth is the spiritual woman made alive and the eternal woman made alive through Jesus Christ because the second Adam fixes the scars and the sins of the first. Now, we read on. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Habilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." You'll see where it says things about the Lord. The Lord will lead some of these verses. Like it says in verse 8, the Lord God planted. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man. Verse 18, and the Lord God said. And then verse 21, and the Lord God caused. So we see the Lord like initiating things here as we go through the the textual record uh, for us in the word of God. And so the first thing we see is the Lord God planted a garden eastward. Now, it is noteworthy too, regardless of what uh, people's worldviews are, including the, the Darwinists and evolutionists, that no matter what they say, this or that, whatever, everyone essentially agrees that man as we know him showed up about 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent, which supports a biblical basis. The cradle of civilization is the Middle East, Babylon, that region, uh, Iran, Iraq. And that Fertile Crescent runs down toward Egypt. It's a Fertile Crescent because of the fertility of the land. And All origins of earliest men are ascribed to that region, which we just read about, these four rivers. And almost uniformity, every textbook will say this is the the beginning of pottery. This is the beginning of sanitation. This is the beginning of building houses. This is the beginning of... Right! Because that's what it says here. And that's certainly what it affirms in chapters 4 and 5 as that primeval world unfolded in the evil they unfolded in, but the development of the technology of that time 
was superhumans, and by the way, they were superhumans. We'll come back to that. But before that fall, God made the first man, and he put him in the garden that he formed. And in that garden, he put him in a place, so his, he had placement. Now, it's interesting when Paul preached to the Athenians that when he preached to Jews, he quoted scriptures from the Old Testament. When he preached to Gentiles, he went to creation. He preached a creation gospel. And the Athenians, he said, you know, God gave you the rain. He gave you the foods and due seasons. And this is what he talked about. Like, And he said that God predetermined our boundaries, when we live, where we live, and the kind of people we'd be. In other words, ethnicity and these sorts of things. Because, of course, we have no self-determination in the sense of when we were created. You didn't predetermine outside of time, space, and matter when you'd be conceived in your mother's womb. God determined those things. And he knows the hairs on our head. So when Paul preached to that type of culture, especially those uh, philosophers on Mars Hill who were Darwinists of their day, he said, no, God, God was good to you. He gave you rain. He gave you all this stuff and this and that and everything else. And I'll quote one of your prophets and another one of your prophets just to build a bridge with you guys. But know this, in predetermining all these things, he predetermined these things that you would look to him, to his son, Jesus Christ, who's appointed judge of all for the end of the age. And some mocked, some believed, and some said, we'll hear more about this later. That's all there in Acts 17. But there was placement. See, when Paul preached that to the Athenians, he predetermined who your time and placement. And this is what you see here. This is placement. Because God formed Adam, and he placed him in certain circumstance that was where he was meant to be fruitful, what his purpose was in existence. He gave him a place. He, plant, he put him in the garden. He put the man whom he formed in the garden. And in that garden, he also gave him self-determination because he gave him the two trees. Love always has a choice, and God is love. And in that love, there is the choice to love or not love. And there's self-determination by which Adam and Eve could show devotion or disobedience, even as it is to this day, which we understand in the human experience. So he put, he put the man, and of course Eve too would be included, we'll get to that, and the tree of life was there in the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, in the kingdom age, the tree of life is again restored, and it is noteworthy that when it talks about Jesus being crucified, curses everyone who hangs from a tree, and he's actually referred to as being hanging from a tree, because of course the cross was made of wood, and one could put forth a reasonable typology that, that Jesus died on the tree of life because he was restoring life on that cross for us. But the original tree of life is restored. It's there in the first two chapters, and it's there in the last two chapters of the Bible, the tree of life. Who can even begin to fathom the tree of life and God's original intention in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life for the head of our race, the heads of our race, Adam and Eve. Who can even imagine when Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, beautiful and perfect, what that tree of life, that was the very best that God had for them. All the blessings were in the tree of life. They could eat from any tree. So everyone's vegetarian, all the animals are vegetarian, everyone's an herbivore, if you will, and there's no death, and it's there for them. And it's the tree of life. It's the focal point of all the blessings. And we talked about this on Saturday night. Our God's a blessing God. He made the covenant with Adam. It says he blessed them. 
Adam and Eve. He made the covenant with Noah. It says he blessed them. He made the covenant with Abraham. He says he blessed them. He made the covenant with Israel. He blessed them. And when Jesus institutes the New Testament, the New Covenant, he blesses us. Our God is a blessing God. And he blessed them. And the focal point of his blessings in that relationship was the tree of life. And he sent his son to die on the cross to restore to us the blessings of that fellowship. And he did when we put our faith in him. And we're moving from glory to glory toward that restored glory because Jesus died on the cross to restore what was lost when they were expelled from the garden and the tree of life. See, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, stayed with them when they left. What they learned when they sinned against God and that sense of nakedness and shame and the darkness and that sick feeling you get when you've really blown it, they learned that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they were expelled from the garden, it went with them, but not the tree of life. When they saw their dead son, Abel, the tree of life, excuse me, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was with them. For they understood evil and they understood death. As they watched their offspring multiply on the face of the earth and multiply sin and rebellion against God, as recorded for us in the coming chapters, past chapter 3, they took the tree of knowledge of good and evil with them in the rest of their experience until they died. And they did die. It took a long time for them to die. But God's not mocked. Let no one deceive themselves. For as you sow, you shall reap. And if he says you eat from that tree, you'll die. You don't know what death is. You're going to find out. And you brought death in the entire universe. The farthest supernova, black hole, to the farthest extremes of this universe as it's expanding and losing energy and expansion. Labors. Mutated from the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But we are promised in Romans 8 that through Jesus dying on the cross and then with the restoration of all things, that the black holes, the supernovas, anything that's doing things wrong in the microscopic world, viruses, or the macro world in outer space, it'll be fixed with the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus makes all things whole again. And like I said before, it's not just getting a, your dent in your car fixed so it doesn't look like it has a dent. It's a newer version. It's a new model. It's better. And this is really good, but it's better than this. Now, self-determination, Adam's there. We have self-determination. He had to make choices, and love has to have a choice. We all know in marriage, we have choices. We know as our kids become adults, they make choices. They can make, you pray they'll make good choices, and hopefully they make more good ones than bad ones. And in this self-determination, there's placement, like I said, but also there's responsibility. There's stewardship, there's devotion or disobedience, but there's stewardship. Because it says in verse 15 that he put him in the garden to tend and keep it. It's been said that Adam had a threefold responsibility. He was a gardener, a zoologist, and a husband. Those are the three responsibilities that come from Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He's the gardener for the Lord, and it's not work like we think of work after sin. And he's a zoologist because he names all the animals, and he cohabitates with all the animals, including dinosaurs. And then he's got a wife. Like, chapter 2 is really good. It's really good. It's beautiful. 
He had those three things. But he had choice. We're not robots. There are many world religions that are fatalistic that make God sovereignty 100% in the sense that if you're doomed, you're doomed. Of course, uh, Islam is very fatalistic. You know, well, they'll say it's the will of Allah and you're just doomed if you're doomed, you're doomed. And there's other world religions that would hold to stuff like that. No, we have a volitional will to choose to receive Christ or reject Christ. And we pass from the curses in Adam to the blessings in Christ, the moment we're willing to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this side of eternity says, repent and believe. That side of eternity says, enter in you who are predetermined before the foundation of the world. But we don't know the flip sides of that coin. And none of you want to stand before the Lord and stand there having mishandled his word or misapplied his character in anything. And if these two trees teach us anything definitively in chapter 2, it is self-determination and a choice of will to submit to the sovereignty of God or to reject it. And you get one chance to do it in time, space, and matter. His sovereignty rules over everything, of course. You understand my context. But he does give us choice. And then in eternity, it's in the next dimension, it's heaven or hell, it's his presence or outer darkness. But he does give us choice. I've had lengthy conversations with people who just refuse to believe that man has a free will and is a self-determined creation. And I've seen the tragic ends of those belief systems and how they affect people because you just come to some fatality that you're just doomed by the fates of an impersonal God. And it's not so. We can't change yesterday, but we can apply faith to today and we can have hope and vision for tomorrow through Jesus Christ. And we can make good choices today in contrast to mistakes yesterday and we can purpose to keep going in a good direction that will make good decisions tomorrow. And you decide that. He's given us those choices. The, the question is, do we want to move toward the tree of life or the tr tree of knowledge of good and evil? Hopefully the tree of life. Verse 18, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called the living creatures, that was his name. Excuse me. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So on the sixth day, after creation of the animal kingdom, the first part, and Adam on the second part, the Lord brought these animals to him. It says the Lord brought the animals to him. And you think like, well, how does this all fit in one day? It fits in one day very easily. You can go to the San Diego Zoo, and if you're booking it, you can see every major animal uh, species macro at the zoo in three hours. The Lord brought the animals to Noah on the ark as well for the preserving the species. Adam didn't sit around naming every subspecies of cats or dogs. The macro, the macro, the macro. And we think of Adam being like us, like, oh, he's like me. No, he wasn't like you. He's a superhuman. I personally believe Adam and Eve were much taller than we are. Not, you know, like, I mean, like, 10, 12 feet. That's my personal convictions. It's not biblical doctrine. I just believe they were. Because it's in our DNA to, you know, there's giants. You know, there's different things. 
and there are very tall human beings. So from every horse, from every portion of a horse, type of horse, each its own kind, whether it's a Shetland pony or a Clydesdale, they came from within that kind. It's in there. And whether they were short or tall, this we know. They were perfect. Their brains were supercomputers. Look what we can do now in a falling capacity 6,000 years from the dawn of creation and all the effects of sin. We can put, we can figure out the math and the science of God's universe, and we can put men on the moon, and we can put a Jeep on Mars. There are incredible things that we can do. We are created in his image, and Adam was a superhuman. And he went right through this, these animals, as God brought them to him, just went, and in all that, you got to believe, it seemed reasonable to believe that there are double genders. Of course, there's a male and a female. And in his cognitive capacities, greater than ours, perfect, sinless, it doesn't take long to figure out that there's two of them and one of you. And they look like you, the men or the males, and no one looks like the female version. Also, God said it's not good that he's alone. Now, this is not a moral bad. It's a experiential bad in the sense that he's incomplete. So in naming the animals at the same time, God's teaching Adam that he's incomplete. He's creating a desire in Adam for that relationship with his wife. He's creating, he's making aware something lacking in his existence that's going to be fulfilled by the Lord very shortly as he's naming the animal kingdom. A perfect human being looking, calling out the names of these animals of all the different types, dinosaurs, who knows which ones. It's all in the DNA, each after its own kind, which the fossil record affirms. And the sense of incompleteness. Now, it's a proven fact that human beings can have a profound sense of emotion for loneliness in a matter of moments. Jennifer will say goodbye to Hannah tomorrow at LAX. And I have done that many times, and it hurts like there's no tomorrow. As happy as we are when, Jen when Hannah arrives from Florida, the sw pendulum swing when she leaves is so sorrowful that generally if we go together, no one talks on the way back from LAX. And you come back to the empty house, and there you are again. Your bed and breakfast was thriving for 10 days, and now it's empty. And that's exactly what happened. Timmy goes to Alaska this day. Nate went back Friday. Timmy Saturday. Luke Sunday to Phoenix. Belle today to Phoenix. Hannah goes back to Florida tomorrow, and it'll be us and the animals. Me and Jennifer, almost like the garden, redeemed, right? But... The loneliness. I read Elizabeth Elliot's book on loneliness. It's one of the best books I ever read. Fantastic book on how God uses loneliness to drive us to himself, to find a fulfillment in him. And it is proven that with just minimal contact with another human being, being separated from that human being in a matter of moments can produce intense, measurable sense of loneliness we are emotional. God has emotion, and he creates with emotion. And in Adam naming these animals and calling them by their species in that original dialect that he had between him and God and his wife, 
he became aware, I believe in a very strong sense, of the missing part of his life, that he was incomplete. And God allowed that and moved that in that direction. It's a two for one. You understand creation, that I put you over it, have dominion over it, and now you understand you're missing something. And that emotion, who can know in a superhuman with no sin how powerful and pure that emotion would be for the missing mate that you're waiting for and meant to be with? Verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made it into a woman, and he brought her to man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So Adam names the animals on the second part of the day. It's his first thing. Like, he's created. God puts life in him. He puts him in the garden. There it is, the trees. He understands it cognitively as a superhuman. And he's processing the trees. Then God brings the animals. He names the animals. He realizes there's two of every kind but one of him. And that sense has created that emotion that we feel with loneliness and a sense of loss when loved ones leave us or they step into eternity, these sorts of things. And the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And from that deep sleep, he pulls out from his side. Now, this word for rib is used about 30 times in the Hebrew. It only here is a translated rib. It comes from the side. It's a word that means like from the side. So it's, I'm not saying it's speculative that it's a rib, but it's, it's kind of, she's from the side. She's from the side. That's what the Hebrew word means. She came from his side. Not from above him, not from beneath him, from his side. And the Lord brought the woman to Adam. And he awoke. Talk about a good dream. Talk about a good dream getting better. So here's Adam, and he's designed to be attracted to the woman. He's designed to reproduce with the woman. And all the emotion that goes with it that would separate humanity from the animal kingdom. Perfect human, male. Now looking at a perfect female that God made from his side. And the awareness that she came from him. Let's think about that. Let's go over time right now. Let's think about this. The awareness that the woman came from him. Yet we are told that woman is in God's image. It's very important to understand that. That the man is incomplete without the woman. That the woman came from man, but men come through women. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us. But to look at this woman in all of her beauty and to have no shame for nakedness for the male or the female, to be perfect human beings, supercomputer minds, unscarred, undefiled, not knowing good and evil, only knowing life in the garden, and to look at that woman and know she came from you and that God brought her to you from you. She's through the man. God brought her through him and to him. But to be the woman and to be made alive from the man, through the man, but by God, and to be suddenly be standing there with awareness of who you are in your feminine beauty, perfect feminine beauty, 
perfect human being, woman, no sin, looking at Mr. Perfect. Because he was Mr. Perfect. And the emotional, the sexual, the physical, the total attraction, all there as God designed it. The two of them looking at each other naked with nothing to be ashamed of. This is a beautiful day, day six in creation. And however many days they had like this after that were beautiful days. This is perfect. The woman from him brought to him, and there they are. So in their perfection, dinosaurs that are herbivores, giant elephants, whatever, that are herbivores, everyone's happy. It's like Narnia, the good Narnia. You know, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's perfect. This is what is lost in Genesis chapter 3. And this is what every move of the Holy Spirit seeks to correct on this day until the Lord comes back. God is making straight what was lost here to give us something even more when we get to there. For I has not seen or heard those things that God has prepared for us. And marriage in heaven is us individually married to the Lord. We are like angels. We are neither given in marriage because it's a higher elevation. As beautiful as this is, Adam and Eve naked, no sin. As beautiful as this is, in heaven, it's higher. We are like the angels. It's a higher plane of love, devotion, and emotion toward the Lord and with the saints of all eternity from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's a higher level than this. As beautiful as it was for Adam and Eve to look at each other and just go like, wow, heaven in our glorified bodies is a bigger wow. Jesus says so. The word of God declares it. But we have one final thought on all this. Until we get there, there's life here in time, space, and matter, isn't there? We taught on marriage recently in Colossians chapter 3, and we'll close with this. God's the initiator of everything, but here comes the stewardship to Adam, and Adam just says, hey, this is bone in my bone, flesh in my flesh. The superhuman without sin. He understands the value of his wife and the beauty of his wife. She shall be called woman. He called her woman, and they were together. Now, then this therefore comes in as a narrative. This was the first family. This was the first marriage. This was the first family. And every generation is, in a sense, the birth of a new family and a family unit. It's male and female. And we all have our families. We're families in motion. There's young families here. There's older families here. Some of us have little kids. Some of us have adult kids. Some of us have grandkids. We're all in different places. And we're watching our kids make decisions to start their families, right? We all have a journey. And some of us are still married. Some of us aren't married. Maybe some of us are divorced. And you can't change that. Maybe some of us lost a loved one. Maybe some of us are remarried. There's different scenarios and different circumstances. But this was the beginning And the family unit starts afresh for each generation. And each generation needs to learn to trust in the Lord in their own way, in their own merit, and find their own traction and their own faith. My devotion this morning is Deuteronomy 6, where God said, when you wake up, you can go out in the field and tell your children about the Lord. And you're going to tell your grandchildren about the Lord, which suddenly means more to me now when I read it than it did four years ago. 
right? It does. It's like, yeah. And each generation, and a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the most greatest inheritance you can leave is the inheritance of life of faith and consecration to the Lord, to your children's children. The temple things might spoil them and destroy them, but faith in Jesus Christ passed on from generation to generation to your children's children, that's the kingdom. They were together. They were one. It's the highest ideology for marriage, and it's divinely initiated. For those of you that are married, we want to be all we can be in our marriage till the journey's done. And we want to love, and we want to grow, and we want to forgive, and we want to shine and be everything we can be. We're not in the place where we're naked and unashamed, but we're in the place where we're redeemed and going forward, and that's a pretty good place for the uh, consolation prize through grace and redemption that Jesus Christ offers us to be the best we can be. Man, we're here, and then we're in the next dimension. This is the only chance we get to apply these things in our life as best we can.